This morning we have been singing the word together. We have read God's word together. We have even prayed God's word together. And now we turn our attention to the preaching of God's word together. And so as we prepare to focus on what God has revealed in his word, let's, let's go to the Lord and ask him for help. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to understand the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the good news. Help us to understand Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Lord, this morning I pray, like every Sunday, Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would make your law and your word come alive to us this morning and change us by it. And we pray this together in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, before the crucifixion of our Lord was carried out before their watching eyes, the future prospect of Jesus' death was bewildering to the disciples. The disciples themselves could not fathom losing their closest friend, their Messiah, the one whom they had grown to greatly love. They could not imagine that he'd be taken away from them. And the evening before Jesus' death, Jesus reminded his disciples that he would soon be leaving them. And the confusion and exasperation that resulted might be best demonstrated in the words of Thomas. So if you would, if you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'm convinced that Thomas often gets a bad rap in the church. We call him Doubting Thomas and we dismiss him. But I think Thomas is a lot like many of us. By nature, he was pessimistic. He was all about the facts on the ground. He was a man of reality. He, he demanded evidence. He longed for certainty, but he also had a great love for Christ. And no one can fault Thomas for not having anything but a sold-out passion for his Savior. And we see a bit of Thomas's character revealed in John 14. Jesus had just informed his disciples that he would soon be leaving them behind. And where he was going, they could not come. That's what he told them at the end of chapter 13. And so into their bewilderment and into their confusion, Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 14. Look, at, look with me at verse 1. Jesus said this to his men, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way I am going. So here Jesus was leaving them. And even though Jesus told his men that one day he would come and get them, one day they would be with him again. And note how Thomas responds to these words of Jesus here in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? So in response to Jesus' words, Thomas immediately voices the concern that's just overflowing in his heart. 
He can't get past the fact that Jesus is departing from them. And really, Thomas's logic is really quite simple. He says, Lord, with all due respect, we have no clue where you're going. Therefore, it's really ridiculous for you to say that we know the way. We don't even know where you're going. How could we know the way? Although Jesus had told them that he would return for them, Thomas here is just bound and determined to understand exactly where Jesus was going. And Thomas really had every intention of following Jesus in this very moment. Jesus had told them, you know the way where I'm going. And yet Thomas takes issue with that. He insists that they don't know the way. But here Jesus is right. They did know the way. Jesus had repeatedly told them the way. Jesus' words here are true. On some level, the disciples knew the way. But in the torrent of emotions that they were experiencing in that moment, the meaning of Jesus' words was lost on at least Thomas. You see, Jesus did not hide the reality of his forthcoming death to his disciples. He, he spoke plainly of it. But it seems that they were unwilling to fully listen. And despite the fact that he had informed them about his departure again and again, the information did not sink into their minds. It was a case of willful disbelief, perhaps selective hearing. Perhaps their love for Christ caused them to choose to disregard Jesus' plain words. And whatever the case, they were unprepared for Jesus' death. In John 14, Thomas reacts to Jesus' words as if they were entirely ignorant of his future plans. But Jesus, on multiple occasions, had clearly revealed his plans to them. They, they should have been aware that Jesus had every intention of dying. They should have understood where Jesus was going. They should have known his destination. Thomas and the others most certainly should have known the way, but somehow they missed it. And in John 14, 6, Jesus, in sort of a summary fashion, answers Thomas's question. And in this one sentence, Jesus really packs an ocean full of biblical truth. Thomas protested again, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is John 14, 6, perhaps one of the most well-known Bible verses of our day, and rightly so. It's really a wonderful summary of soul-saving truth. In essence, it reveals the very nature, the very core of the gospel message. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is how sinners like you and me can be reconciled to a holy God. And yet these words are often so familiar to us that the temptation is for us just to pass right over them. I'm sure if I asked you, many of you could quote this verse from memory if asked. Perhaps you've known this verse since you were five years old. But for at least the Christian, this truth and this verse never gets old. It's never outdated. It will always be relevant for us. And this morning, I want to approach this passage in a way that helps us understand three things. First, I want you to understand the destination. 
That is where Christ is going, and ultimately where we should want to go as well. That's the first, the destination. Secondly, I want you to understand the way to get there. We might think of that as the how, how to get there. And finally, I want you to understand the reasons that this way is the right way. So really, the three parts this morning, the destination, the way, and the reasons. Where, how, and why, perhaps. And so first, this morning, let's look at the destination, where Jesus is going and where we ought to desire to go as well. In this passage, Jesus is going somewhere. That's very clear. We see this back in John 13, verse 36, just in the previous chapter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, well, where I go, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So here it's clear, Jesus is soon departing. And as I already mentioned, Jesus had plainly told his disciples that in order to get where he was going, he must first die. In order to get to that ultimate destination, Jesus needed to go through death. To see this with me in your own Bible, back up with me to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and just consider how plainly Jesus speaks of his death in this passage. Mark chapter 9, and look with me at verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will raise three days later. In essence, Jesus says, look, here it is, man. Here's the plan. The Son of Man, that is the Christ, that is the Messiah, me, they will take me and they will kill me, but three three days later I'll rise again. But for some reason, the meaning of these words just sort of bounces off the disciples. It's like he's literally speaking a different language to them, because look at verse 32. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. In other words, they missed it. So Jesus has to tell them again. Look over at the next chapter, Mark chapter 10, and look at verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful Here, some of the disciples are amazed, some are fearful. We know from John chapter 11 that that not long before this, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus in Jerusalem. So here we find Jesus just marching boldly back again to Jerusalem and into harm's way. That's why some were fearful and some were amazed. And in this moment, Jesus thought it was necessary to remind them again of his plan. Look at the refs of verse 32 and he again took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying behold we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man that's Jesus's favorite term for himself the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and hand him over the Gentiles they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus says, look, this is the reason we're going to Jerusalem. 
I have a plan to carry out. I will go there. I will be beat. I will be mocked. I will be scourged. And then I will be killed. Very clear. Later in this same chapter, in verse 45, Jesus gives us a reason that he came. He came to the earth to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life was a ransom for many. And yet these clear words of Christ did not sink into the minds and hearts of the disciples. The disciples must have just had a dazed look in their eyes when Jesus explained these things to them because they, they were not getting it. They still didn't get it. Nevertheless, Jesus was determined to die, but he knew his death would be short-lived. In three days, he would rise again. He sort of had a destination beyond death. And, and we see Jesus' ultimate destination, where he's planning to go, described in John 13. So, so back up with me to the Gospel of John again. John chapter 13. And look where Jesus says he is going here in the beginning verse of this chapter. John 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus was departing to go where? To the Father. Jesus had come from his Father in heaven when he was incarnated, when he was born of the Virgin. He came from heaven to the earth, and now Jesus is going back to his Father. He's returning to his Father in heaven. So although Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to the Father, that he was going back to heaven, they did not understand. Because Peter asks again in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And then again in chapter 14, verse 4, Jesus tells them, you know the way where I'm going. You, you know. Then Thomas, of course, protests again in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? But the way here we'll get to in a moment. But for now, just, we're just focused on the destination. And I think we've already established that the destination is the Father. Jesus is returning to his Father in heaven. And to get to his Father, Jesus had to pass through death, then be resurrected, and then ascend and go back to the Father. But the thing that we must note carefully is that Jesus' destination here is also our ultimate destination. Jesus is going to the Father. His goal was to go to the Father, and that is our goal also. In John 14, 6, the goal is to get to the Father, to make it to the Father. Later in the verse, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. In John 14, 6, the goal is for each one of us to go to the Father. The goal is to get to God. This should be the goal of every human being on the planet, that we could make our way to God. This should be the number one consuming passion of every individual on the earth, to make it to God. Going to, to God, going to the Father, has both a physical component and a spiritual one. You see, one day, some people, and only some, will go to be with God forever. However, we can spiritually go to God now. We can be reconciled to God now. We can be forgiven by God now. We can be brought under his loving care now. This also informs us that naturally, 
men are not with God. We, we must go to God. We must find the way to go to God. Naturally, we come into this world not with God. Meaning, when we're born into this world, we're not born on God's team. We have all inherited a sinful nature. We come into this world as enemies of God. The Bible says that we're actually children of Satan as we come into this world, not children of God. You see, through our sins, we rebel against a holy God. And the Bible tells us plainly, there is no one righteous, not even one. On our own, there is no one as good. good. There's no one who just earns heaven by being good and being a good person. There's no one who qualifies. You see, as a result of our sin and our rebellion against God, we are naturally not with God. We must go to him. We must be reconciled to him. We must make every effort to get to God in this life. The destination is God. That is clear. We want to get to God the Father. The next question then is, how do we get there? What is the way to God? We know the destination, but, but what is the route to arrive there, to follow Jesus there? What, what is the path that we must take? Well, this brings us to our second point. I'm calling it the way. Understanding the way to God is really critically important. Understand in this life there is really nothing more valuable. Understanding how to get to God is of paramount importance. Even if perhaps you right now don't think it is. It is the most important thing in this life, making sure we understand how to get to God. Jesus assured his disciples that they knew the way. But again, Thomas is sort of befuddled here. He responds, Lord, how do we know the way? And so this morning, ask yourself, do you know the way? Do you know the way? Do you know the way to the Father? If someone were to walk up to you in the grocery store, perhaps, and say, how can I get to the Father? How can I go to heaven? Could you give them an answer? And would your answer be a correct answer? It's one thing to give them an answer, but would your answer correspond with reality? Would it correspond with the truth? Let me tell you, the way to God is no mystery. It's been clearly revealed. God wants us to understand and know the way to God. Uh, so look again at Jesus' words in John 14:6. He says, I am the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus himself is the way to God. He's the route. He's the path. This, Jesus doesn't only say that I'm the way. Of course, he adds that I am the truth and the life. But based upon the context and Thomas's question and the concern about how to get to God and where he's going, really the way is foundational in this passage. The way to God is foundational in this verse. And the way to God is Jesus. Jesus himself is the way. This means that Jesus did not just pioneer a path for us to follow in. It's not like Jesus was the first traveler on this path trailblazing away. No, that's not the idea. Jesus himself is the way. And in this well-known verse, Jesus emphatically declares that he himself is the way to God the Father. But maybe you're asking yourself, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the way? How, how can a person be a way? And I think that's a very good question. And to answer that, I think it's helpful to remember that Jesus told his disciples in verse 4 
that they already knew the way. They already knew it. So in Jesus' time with his disciples, and in this very book, the Gospel of John, Jesus had already explained to them the way to God over and over again. And this gives us a clue that if we back up into the Gospel of John, we should be able to find other examples of Jesus explaining the way to God. And in this book, if there's one central theme in the Gospel of John, it is that you must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That you must believe that Jesus is God. This, this is the theme of the Gospel of John. It's belief. Belief in Jesus. So let, so let me just remind you of a few of the passages that we find earlier in this chapter. For example, in the opening chapter of the Gospel, the Apostle John wrote, But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In John chapter 3, verse 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. In John 3, 36, Jesus says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So just on and on, we could go walking through this book. Again and again, Jesus tells anyone who will listen, believe in me, and you will never thirst. Believe in me, and you will have eternal life. Believe in me, and you will escape the wrath of God. Believe in me, and you will become a child of God. The theme of this book is belief in in Jesus. We just see this over and over again in this particular gospel. But I'd like you to see this with me in one other place in this book. Turn back with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. In this passage, Jesus really gets into an extended argument with the Pharisees. And that's really the religious teachers, the religious elite of the day. Hypocrites. And sort of, so we're dropping into the middle of their discussion. And in this passage, really the heat is turned up. The gloves come off. Jesus is no longer playing nice with these hypocritical Pharisees. Look with me at John 8, verse 21. Verse 21. He said to them again, I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This is similar to John 14. Jesus is now planning to go away, but unlike John 14, he tells the Pharisees, you're not coming. And look at verse 22. So the Jews were saying to him, surely he's not going to kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. Really, they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is going back to his Father in heaven, and that's the one place that these hardened Pharisees will not be going. Look at verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. 
You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You see, the reason that the Pharisees cannot go to God is because they adamantly refuse to believe that Jesus is God. Jesus tells them plainly, unless you believe I am, I am. These words, of course, harken back to God's covenant name for himself, Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's what this word I am Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am God, that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. And this helps us understand John 14, 6. The way to God is through belief in Jesus. Unless you believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus himself is God, you will die in your sins. Unless you give your life to this Christ, your entire being to him, you will die in your sins. This, of course, was not only true for the Pharisees and for his disciples, it's true for each one of us here today. Unless you believe that Jesus is God, you will die in your sins. This past week, I interacted with an old high school acquaintance of mine in a coffee shop. And she told me she was a, a struggling member of the LDS church. And she told me about the Jesus that she worshipped, who was this offspring of, of the Heavenly Mother and uh, Yahweh, Elohim, wedding this child. And I just told her plainly, that's a different Christ. That's not what we believe in. You must believe that Jesus is Yahweh. He's not two different beings. Jesus did not become God because he achieved God-like status, which is what the Mormon church teaches. I, I said, you must believe that Jesus is God. That is the gospel. That is the truth. This is what we all must believe. And unless you believe that Jesus is God, you will die in your sins. Dying in your sins means that your sins will drag you down to hell for eternity. And meaning you will not escape the just penalty that you have accrued because of your sins and your rebellion against God. You will die bound in your sins. So the way to get to God the Father is through belief in God the Son. The way to escape the penalty of your sin is to flee to Christ. Understand that. This is what the disciples knew. They should have known this. They had heard it again and again. Thomas knew this truth, but perhaps in the emotional intensity of this moment, Thomas needed a, a clear reminder. And so Jesus tells him, Thomas, I am the way. But this is not all that Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we've seen here the destination. We know where Jesus is going. He's going to God the Father. The way to get there is Jesus himself. And now thirdly, I want you to understand the reasons that Jesus is the way. The reasons that he is the way. So third point, the reasons. Jesus is the way to God. And the reason that he is the way to God is that he is the truth and the life. Now look at your Bible again with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's really two reasons here. Two reasons that are foundational for Jesus being the way. 
They really provide the needed support for us to know for certain that Jesus is the way. And the first is this. Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the truth. This of, Courtman, this, is, this, of course, is a statement that only God himself could make. No one else could say, I am the truth. Just test this out. I encourage you to walk around downtown for a while telling people that you are the truth and see where you end up. You won't be long, of course, before you are secured yourself a spot in the mental ward. But for Jesus, he is the truth. He is the truth. And we say, well, what does this mean? Jesus is the truth in that he embodies all truth. He is the truth of God in human flesh. He's truth incarnate. Jesus himself explains God to us in human form. He is God and he reveals God to us in a human form. And we might say Jesus narrates the truth of God to us. And this was the meaning of John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus, or John says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is the, in the bosom of the Father, that is Jesus, He has explained Him. And Jesus explains God to us. And as a member of the Trinity, Jesus is God revealed in human flesh. According to Jesus' own words, He only did what the Father told Him to do. So everything that Jesus said and did is fundamental truth from God. So we can be certain that Jesus is the way because he is the truth of God. The second reason that we can be sure that Jesus is the way is because he is the life. Jesus is the life of God. In John 1.4, we find that Jesus was the life. And the life was the light of men. In John chapter 5, it says, He has life in himself. In John 11.25, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In the epistle of 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. The very life of God is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. The life of God is an eternal life because God is an eternal being. God has always existed. Understand that God has always existed. Difficult to wrap our minds around, but God has always existed and he always will exist. In other words, he's infinite. He is the preeminent being over everything. And his essence is simple, meaning that he's entirely self-dependent. God needs nothing to exist. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He's perfectly, entirely self-dependent upon himself. Everything else is contingent upon God. But God is really the only one true unconditional being. And he has always existed in three persons. In the Trinity, three persons in one God, in communion together. And the Trinity itself is the most fundamental truth to the entire universe. All life in the universe is a result of life in the Trinity. The life of God exists in Christ. 
And the only hope that we have of gaining this eternal life is to access God the Father through God the Son, and that is Jesus of Nazareth who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago. The life of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is the truth of God and because he's the life of God, he is the way to God, which again is of utmost importance to each one of us here today. Our greatest need in this life is to go to the Father when we die. Not to die in our sins, not to die bound in our sins, but to go to God the Father. Jesus is our conduit to God. But there's a final point that Jesus makes here in John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the absolute exclusivity of Christ. Going to God the Father is of utmost importance, and there's only one path to him. There's only one way to get to God. There's really many things that are offensive about Christianity. And maybe most of all that is offensive about Christianity is Jesus' own words. And John 14, 6 is the most exclusive and perhaps the most offensive of all of Christ's sayings. It is indeed the most exclusive statement ever made by anyone. Today, it's common for people to say things like, well, well there's many paths to God. Uh, come as you are. Just, just choose what suits you best. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm just going to make my own way up. I'll do it my way. The truth is relative. The, the, the friend I spoke with in the coffee shop, she told me, you do you, I'll do me. In the end, she said, it's all about love. But Jesus' words in John 14, 6 inform us that all of these are lies spawned from Satan himself. All such postmodern thoughts will be, proved, be proven to be utter foolishness in eternity. And people build their lives and their hopes on these hollow statements, doing their best to sort of relieve themselves of their guilty conscience and their moral culpability. But know for certain today, Christ is the only way to God. There are no alternative paths. There's one route to God. And you must travel that route all by yourself. Understand that I cannot go there with you. You must go by yourself. Your family will not get you there. You yourself must choose to take this path, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. You personally must go to God through Jesus Christ. And we say, well, why are there no other routes available? Why do these no, no other supposed routes work? Because Jesus alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the wrath of a holy God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You and I are sinners who've rebelled against a holy God, and there's really only one remedy for our condition. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice given by God to redeem mankind. And if you reject that sacrifice, there is no other. There's no other hope outside of Christ. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. It's entirely exclusive. Jesus is the one who died in our place. 
Jesus lived a perfect life and then died and paid the debt that we deserved. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death, showing that all sin had been paid for and dealt with. And then he ascended and the Father accepted him into his presence, telling us that the payment has been accepted. It's been cleared. We now can be made fully right with God through Jesus Christ. And so in John 14, here as Jesus spoke these words to his men, they were, of course, disoriented. They were just bewildered at the prospect of Jesus leaving them. And they needed to be reminded. So in verse 1, Jesus says to them, you know, trust in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then Jesus directly addressed Thomas's confusion. He says, Thomas, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I don't know if they fully understood in this moment but everything would be clarified for them soon enough. Thomas himself had a, a special meeting with our Lord where Jesus set everything straight for him. Turn over with me to John chapter 20 as we round out our time this morning in God's Word. John chapter 20. After Jesus rose from the grave, the resurrected Messiah reveals himself to ten of the disciples. Now look at verse 19 of John chapter 20. Verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut and the disciples, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his sides. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. As we'll see here in a moment, there was one notable absence from the group. Look with me at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. wonder why. Why was Thomas not there? Perhaps he was so de distraught and depressed that he could not imagine being in fellowship at this time. And I really appreciate this about Thomas. He wants to see him. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Graphic statement from Thomas. I want to put my hands into his wounds. I want to see him with my own eyes. I'm not going to believe it just because you said it. And where does Christ meet him? He meets him exactly where he is. Look at verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples again were inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut. And Jesus stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he, our Lord directs his attention directly towards Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And wow, what is Thomas's response to this personal word from Jesus? As if Jesus heard his very words and repeats them back to him. Now Jesus is calling him to be believing, to trust him. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. 
This is Thomas's faith really coming to full bloom. Beautiful words, an amazing confession. Jesus says, Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord, my master, my kurios, the sovereign one in my life. And he says, my God. Thomas calls Jesus God, and rightly so here. And then Thomas just sort of surrenders. He's, he's undone. He confesses that Jesus is God. Now he rightly understands that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And then look at Christ's response in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I wonder, is that you? We don't have the evidence of Christ showing up here and now to be able to talk with him and look at his wounds. We're not granted that. And Jesus acknowledges here that there'll be many that don't experience it like Thomas did. But Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And so, do you believe? Have you yourself taken a hold of this way to God? It's the most fundamental, important thing about you is do you own Christ? Have you known him? Are you following him? Have you given your life to him? The Apostle Paul, preaching in Athens, said, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, raising him from the dead. The resurrection is proof of Jesus being the Messiah and the only way to God. So you must believe in Christ. You must trust him. You must give your entire life to following and loving this Christ. It's our only hope. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from the Gospel of John. We even thank you for Thomas and his skeptical, slow-to-believe heart. Lord, I pray for many of us like Thomas that we would believe fully in Christ, that we would see that we must believe that Jesus is God or we will die in our sins. I pray for everyone here that we would be trusting in this Christ as our only hope of salvation. I pray for any here who do not know God and have not come to you yet through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would burden their hearts, that they would see the irresistible truth of these words and come and surrender their life to Jesus Christ. And would you cause them to be born again, completely transform their life. Would they become sold out for following Jesus Christ? I pray that there would be people here who understand Christ called us to discipleship to come and die. Whoever wishes to follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow him. I pray that some would do that here today for the first time, following Christ, giving their life away to Christ so that they may find it eternally. Lord, we thank you for this gospel message. Help us all to know it. Help us all to love it. And help us to, help us to proclaim these words to the world. That is why you have left us here to make disciples. So may this gospel and may this Christ go forth from us to a dying world as we tell them, trust in Christ, believe in Christ, turn from your sins and come to Christ.
Lord, we pray that many would come to know you through our faithful witness. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.